us uh, on their own computers, um, and this is also being recorded. The title of today's presentation is Postoperative Urinary Retention in Orthopedic Patients, How to Address What Cannot Be Seen. And at the conclusion of the presentation, you should be able to identify risk factors associated with post-op urinary retention and describe interventions to prevent postoperative urinary retention. Before we begin, I do have several brief announcements. After the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development. There'll be a link to an online evaluation. Uh, please complete that. Your feedback is very important to us. And within two weeks' time, your credit will be posted to your online transcript. Um, be sure if you're here to sign in, you must um, attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit. And if you haven't signed in, we have no record of your being here. For those of you who are viewing online, if you do have any questions during the presentation, Judy Langhans is monitoring her email. Um, and you can uh, send your questions to her and she will present them to our speakers. Her email is judith.m as in May dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at Hitchcock.org. Um, also, for folks who are viewing online, if you could contact Judy, email her within an, within an hour of the conclusion of the presentation. Let her know that you participated. She'll need your name, degree, and um, zip code, and she'll be sure to get that evaluation out to you and post your credit. There are instructions on how to access your transcript by the sign-in sheet here or you can contact Judy and she can help you with, with that for those of you who are viewing online. We want you to know that neither our speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So at this time, I have great pleasure in introducing a moderator to you, Dr. Susan Reeves. Dr. Reeves is the Dean of the School of Health Professions at Colby Sawyer College and is a former employee uh, from, well, a whole bunch of different titles, whole bunch of them, most recently vice president here um, for many years. We're thrilled to be so closely involved with her as she leaves the School of Nursing at Colby Sawyer. She'll be introducing our two speakers, and I ask that you please join me in welcome, welcoming all of them to the podium. Thank you, Dr. Hastings. Welcome, everybody. And I'm delighted to be here today with two of our almost graduates. They're about 10 days out at this point, and uh, they're in countdown mode. So um, really pleased to be here with you today. You know, we do a lot at Colby Sawyer to make sure that the graduates that we're producing are capable of coming into the workforce and delivering a very high level of quality of care. But one of the things we're also very clear about is that it's a nurse's responsibility to be always improving that care that they're delivering. And so in this very last course that they take as part of their education as nurses at Colby Sawyer, in their capstone course, um, they are engaged clinically in doing 240 hours of a practicum experience. Um, these two individuals completed theirs here, and they'll tell you a little bit more about where that happened. But also, they're in a class for two hours a week, and in that two hours, we cover all kinds of topics, but certainly, quality improvement and safety are two of the things that are a focus for that particular course. And to that end, they have an assignment that they have to do. 
So while they are in their clinical area, wherever they're practicing, either here at the medical center or another uh, healthcare organization, they have to select a quality or safety concern in the area of practice in which they're working. And once they select that area of concern, and they do that by talking to not only the staff at the bedside, but also the leadership in the area, they conduct a literature review and complete an annotated bibliography. And then importantly, what they do next is they propose a small test of change to see if they might make an improvement in that care for that patient population. The last part of the project is to actually, they don't actually conduct the project, they don't have enough time, but what they do have to do then is disseminate what they've learned, what they would do if they were able to implement their project, and then importantly provide some evaluation. So today is the dissemination portion of that project. They're going to talk to you all about what they've learned. Now, an interesting thing happened on the way to this particular project. As we were talking in class, all the students, all 33 of them, were sharing what was the quality or safety topic that they were going to choose for this project. And these two individuals, maybe they knew, but I don't know if they did or not, had chosen the same topic. And it was, uh, and again, it was how to prevent bladder stretch injury in a certain patient population. And interestingly, one of the students was in one area of the process, the post-anesthesia care area, and the other student was on the inpatient unit on 3 West. And so very wisely, they know that two heads are better than one, and they put their heads together and decided to work in collaboration on this project. So that's what you're going to hear about today. Uh, they will be open for questions at the end of their presentation, and Colby Sawyer students you juniors in the room should be listening carefully to what this project is about and be thinking about your opportunities for improvement next year. And I'd love to make sure you're going to ask them some questions. So, Becca and Saren. Thank you, Dean Reeves. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. So, good afternoon. Thank you for attending today's session of Nursing Grand Rounds. As Dean Reeves stated, I am Rebecca Hashem, and standing with me is Saren Courtney. Today, we, uh, we are senior nursing students at Colby Sawyer, New London, and today we will be discussing with you the important issue of post-operative urinary retention. And from now on in this presentation, post-operative urinary retention will be referred to as POR. So from attending this session of Nursing Grand Rounds, we hope that you will be able to identify the risk factors that are associated with POR, and also be able to implement the necessary interventions that will aid in the prevention of poor. All right, thank you, Becca. Can you all hear me? Okay. So there are certain terms that will be used throughout this presentation, and it is important to understand them before we start talking about them. So as previously stated, poor is an abbreviation for post-operative urinary retention. This term refers to a condition that a patient can acquire following any type of surgical procedure. Urinary retention refers to a patient's bladder not being able to empty adequately or properly. When a patient begins to suffer from urinary retention, they may acquire a condition referred to as bladder stretch injury. A bladder stretch injury is defined as overdistension of the fibers within the bladder wall, which can lead to difficult urination and inability of the bladder to empty.
Hello? Okay. <laughs> uh, when assessing for bladder stretch injury, the piece of data that is of most interest to the nurse is the post-void residual. This will also be referred to as PBR throughout the presentation. A PBR is the amount of urine that is left in the bladder after a patient has successfully spontaneously voided. A PVR that is too large can lead to bladder stretch injury. In order to assess the patient for a rising PVR, a bladder scan is performed. A bladder scan is an assessment technique used by nursing staff that utilizes an ultrasound to estimate the amount of urine that is present in the bladder at any given time. Following the assessment of a patient's PVR using a bladder scan, they may require what is referred to as straight catheterization or a straight cath. This is an intermittent task completed by nursing staff it is a sterile procedure that involves insertion of a catheter into the urethra and the bladder so that urine can be drained to prevent bladder injury. This assists the patient to passively empty their bladder when it begins to become too full based on facility-specific protocol. DHMC's protocol will be discussed shortly. If a patient requires multiple straight caths due to their inability to void spontaneously, a placement of an indwelling urethral catheter may be necessary or a Foley catheter. This will provide continuous drainage from the bladder that will also prevent bladder stretch injury. Spinal anesthesia is an anesthetic that is injected into the spinal canal near the meninges in the spinal column. Once this has had time to reach its full effects, nerves of the body below the point of injection will essentially fall asleep and not conduct signals that they normally would. This is important in the development of pore because of the innervation of the bladder, which will be discussed in the following slide. The main difference between a patient receiving general anesthesia and spinal anesthesia is that with a spinal, a patient is not intubated and put to sleep, and they may be awake for the whole procedure. This means a patient can hear all that goes on in the operating room because they are awake, although they cannot feel what is happening and are usually medicated pretty, high, pretty well so that they don't really remember what's going on. Um, so a spinal anesthetic can last up to 12 hours normally, depending on the patient and the dosage that's given. And lastly, a joint arthroplasty is normally performed to help relieve a patient that is suffering from pain due to osteoarthritis or other degenerative joint diseases. It also may be done to help realign a joint that has become displaced from overuse. Artificial components of metal or plastic will be inserted to create a new joint for the patient. Following the procedure, the patient should have a drastic decrease in their baseline amount of pain and an increased amount of function in this new joint. Thank you, Saren. So now to understand the physiology of the adult bladder. So the bladder is a hollow elastic organ that stores urine and uh, the urine that's made from the kidneys travels down the ureters and then ends up being stored in the bladder. The bladder is a unique body organ because of the human's ability to train it over time so that we only need to void a few times throughout the day. Transitional epithelium, elastic fibers, and visceral muscle tissue in the walls of the bladder contribute to its distensibility and elasticity. This is what allows the bladder to return to its normal shape and size following urination. Within the bladder, there are ridges called rugae, which is what allow for the bladder to stretch and fill to compensate the volume. In order for a patient to urinate successfully, the detrusor muscle has to relax and the internal urethral sphincter muscle needs to relax. As humans, we are able to control when we need to urinate. It is due to the external urethral sphincter that allows one to control and delay urination until muscle contraction occurs. When a Foley catheter is inserted into the bladder, it enters the body through the urethra and travels up, the, up into the bladder where the balloon neck is inflated and allows the catheter to sit just above the bladder neck sphincter. 
The balloon at the end of the Foley keeps the catheter from coming out and allowing for continuous drainage of urine. Continuous drainage, as Saren stated earlier, prevents from overfilling of the bladder and stretching in the rugae of the wall. So to make this situation seem a little more real and applicable for you, we thought that a case study may help aid in your understanding of this issue. The patient information provided is figurative and mentioned solely and to aid in your understanding of the current situation of four. This case study will be focused on an elective total hip arthroplasty using the anterior approach. So this is our patient, Bob. Bob is a 65-year-old male that's presenting to DHMC today to have an elective right total hip arthroplasty using the anterior approach. The risks and benefits are explained to Bob and the informed consent is signed. Anesthesiology has met with him and has premised him for his surgery today. He is to receive a femoral nerve block here in same-day surgery and spinal anesthesia while in the OR. His past medical history includes osteoarthritis, GERD, which is controlled with Nexium, and hypothyroidism that is managed with a daily dose of Synthroid. In same day, his preoperative vital signs are obtained, and the RN notes no abnormalities. The RN, surgeon, and anesthesiology all perform their necessary duties in same day surgery to prepare Bob to be brought back into the OR. So in the operating room, Bob received his femoral nerve block while he was back in same day and then brought to the OR where he received his spinal anesthesia. A timeout was performed and then the first incision was made. The estimated time for surgery was three hours. A Foley catheter was not placed due to a plan for early mobilization and next day discharge. Bob was estimated to have lost 1,200 milliliters of blood due to an accidental incision into the femoral artery that was not easily cauterized. Bob was given one liter of normal saline throughout surgery to help maintain his blood pressures between 120 over 60. So now Bob is in the PACU following surgery. When he arrives, he is alert and oriented, reporting pain zero out of 10 due to the spinal anesthesia. Report is given to the PACU nurse from anesthesia and they're aware of the blood loss and fluid intake from intra-op. While in the PACU, Bob has Q 15 minute vital sign checks per protocol and is bladder scanned upon arrival due to the lack of Foley catheter placement. Bob, at this point in time, has 250 milliliters of urine in his bladder. Usual PACU recovery orders are completed, including maintenance fluids initiated and post-op antibiotics administered. The patient meets PACU discharge criteria and is transferred to 3West. So upon arrival to the floor, Bob was greeted by the floor staff of Free West. His first set of vital signs was obtained within five minutes of arrival and his blood pressure was noted to be 80 over 55. <coughs> Nursing students, we all know that's not normal. So the resident was notified via text page and order was given for a 500 milliliter fluid bolus. This was to be infused over one hour. A focused assessment of Bob's periphery was completed and noted that the neurovascular assessment was benign. Following the completion of the bolus, Bob's blood pressure returned to normal, being 110 over 70. After the hustle of the incident slowed down, another bladder scan was obtained. This showed that Bob now had 600 milliliters of urine in his bladder following the fluid bolus administration. So, in order to assess your previous knowledge and get you thinking about bladder stretch injury, we present you with a question. How many milliliters K 
can the adult bladder hold before damage to starch receptors occurs? And raise your hand if you have an idea. Any numbers, throw it out there. There's a lot. What's that? 500. Okay, 500. Any other ideas? Okay, well, you are correct. 500 is the answer. <laughs> So, as previously discussed, the rugae of the bladder are sensitive to overdistension, and combined with damage to the muscle of the bladder wall can cause permanent injury to the bladder. The permanent damage that can be caused includes multiple episodes of urinary retention, which you can kind of assume will continue to damage the bladder, which will lead to decreased bladder function and control due to damage to these receptors. So this is the bladder scan protocol at DHMC currently. It varies sometimes based on patient population, but this is generally what you will see. So, currently, if a patient scans for 0 to 200 milliliters of urine, the scan is to be repeated again in two hours. At this level of urine fullness, it is not necessary to, for immediate action. Um, after two hours has passed, the patient must be scanned again. If the assessment reveals a urine level between 201 and 399 milliliters of urine, the patient should be encouraged to void. The patient will have one hour until the next scan. Once this time has passed and the scan is, repeat scan is performed, and the assessment reveals 400 to 500 milliliters of urine, the patient needs to get up and attempt to void. If they do void and there is a PVR or post-void residual of 400 or more, the patient will require a straight cath. Any bladder scan greater than 500 milliliters needs to be acted upon immediately with a straight cath to prevent bladder damage. So as we discussed, um, part of this project was on the floors that we were working on for our practicum. I was on the PACU and Becca was on 3 West. So I'm just going to discuss how um, poor is an issue in the PACU and discuss, um, Becca will discuss how it's an issue on 3 West. So the post-anesthesia care unit is where most patients go to recover from surgery. Because any type of anesthesia has risks for the patient, it's safer to send them to this high acuity unit before being sent to the floors such as 3 West. In choosing this topic for my project, I asked all the nurses and management on the floor what kind of quality safety issues were relevant on that unit. A majority of the nurses addressed the issue of post-operative urinary retention. They described this as an issue mostly among patients, but also for time management for the nurses of the PACU. So in the PACU, it is a one to two ratio, so one nurse per two patients. So, and there's also every 15 minutes some sort of assessment that needs to be happening. So, there's a few nurses in the crowd. I'm sure you can imagine every 15 minutes having to do something, and then on top of that, having to straight cath your patient can be pretty overwhelming and um, trying to figure out the time to do that. So on top of having to carry out these tasks every two min or 15 minutes um, and having two patients at one time, if you're straight cathing one patient, your eyes are off of your other patient, and anything could be happening, and you wouldn't know. So it's a safety issue and a quality issue for patients that have to be continually straight cath due to this issue of poor. Also, part of the DHMC protocol is to encourage void um, for certain bladder scan volumes, as you saw. So a little perspective, the PACU is one big room, and the only source of privacy that you have is drawing a curtain around your bed. So you can imagine not being able to feel anything below your waist. So obviously, you'll need a bedpan. And then being on bedpan just behind a curtain, encouraging to void is kind of difficult in that sort of setting. So also based on the challenge faced with giving um, IV fluids intraoperatively to a patient where there is no indwelling catheter, there's often evidence that these patients are not given as much IV fluids in an attempt to prevent bladder stretch injury. 
in the case of bob, we saw that he lost more fluids than were given back to him, which caused some major issues after that. so um, this can cause issues with hypovolemia um, and things related to hypotension, changes in mental status, or even serious cardiac issues if they're not being resuscitated appropriately. So to address the to address the um, postoperative urinary retention factor on 3West, similar to Saren, I asked various staff nurses on the floor what they found to be a quality improvement issue that I can investigate for my project. And many of them responded with falls because we're on an orthopedic trauma unit. Um, and um, I also received the answer of bladder stretch injury because of our orthopedic patient population. Um, currently on 3West, there's a large number of post-operative patients that arrive to the floor following major joint arthroplasties. These include knees, hips, and shoulders. And a majority of these patients are receiving spinal anesthesia. So it's been observed that these are the patients that require the most frequent straight caths. And when an orthopedic patient requires a straight cath, there can be an issue that's challenging to nursing. Um, a lot of the times we will have patients have a bladder scan of 600 um, or 700, and then they're only spontaneously voiding 100 or 200 milliliters on their first void post-op. So, you know, we go to our NPs, our PAs, and we say, they voided this much. Do you want us to straight cath? Should we straight cath? Or should we allow them to keep spontaneously voiding? Um, there's lack of evidence that Saren and I were able to find regarding this topic in our research. Um, but another topic regarding the patient population on 3West is the period of diuresis following surgery. So patients are often resuscitated with fluids in the OR to keep them stable during this vulnerable time. Um, and, you know, when patients get discharged from PACU, we get report and they'll say their bladder scan was 250 and we're like, awesome. Um, but then they get to the floor and sometimes it can be an hour, an hour and a half by the time they get to the floor. And unlike Bob, who had less fluid than his loss. Most of the patients that we see on the floor will receive a liter or more of crystalloid fluid um, for 200 or 300 milliliter blood losses. So during the time of post-operative adjustment, when the body is starting to settle and dispose of the unnecessary fluids that they received intra-op, the bladder is now being placed with all the fluid shifts, and then all of this excess fluid is accumulating in the bladder, leading to the stretch injury, leading to the pore. So finally, on 3West, there is a goal of early mobilization for all of our knee and hip arthroplasty patients. Early mobilization is very important because of its ability to help prevent complications that arise from immobility, such as deep vein thrombosis and pneumonia. So patients that undergo an anterior total hip arthroplasty normally will be dangling at the bedside, up out of bed, walking laps within about three hours of arriving from the PACU. So it's thought that the placement of a Foley catheter may hinder these ambitions of our patients and not allow mobilization to occur as early. Okay, so part of our project, sorry, part of our project was to um, do some research into the risk factors of poor and ways to prevent it. So we will start with some risk factors that Becca and I both identified. So as you can see, there are multiple sources of literature that identify the same risk factors for patients that might have poor. And those in include age, typically 50 plus years old, gender, usually male, type of surgery, typically an orthopedic or joint arthroplasty case, 
amount of IV fluids intraop, duration of surgery, and type of anesthesia, spinal anesthesia, which we discussed how that leads to poor. So these are the most common risk factors addressed in a majority of the research done between Becca and I, and we will further discuss how these risk factors will be used to prevent poor. But first, more literature. So other research found what each volume from the bladder scan means for the patient. It's possible that DHMC's protocol was built off of this type of literature and understanding what the volume means for the patient. So this particular literature states that anything less than 200 milliliters is not of immediate concern. And as you can see in DHMC's protocol, it's just a repeat scan in two hours. And with this literature, between 200 and 399, the patient has an increased risk for poor. So this is um, reflected in DHMC's protocol with encouraging to void and sca um, scanning again in an hour. Um, when more than 400 milliliters is, pr is present in the bladder, it is important to empty the bladder through encouragement or void with or with straight cath in DHMC's protocol. And this literature says anything over 1,000 requires an indwelling catheter. Now that's not reflected in DHMC's protocol. It's likely that this literature um, identifies patients that have over a liter of fluid in their bladder as being very high risk for poor and that one straight cath isn't gonna do the job. So just having an indwelling catheter will hopefully solve the problem. So some other literature that Sarah and I found, um, we found that Kearney and Nolotti, the source from 2010, um, they had an implementation of a risk factor assessment in their study, and it was specifically done in orthopedic patients, and we thought that this could be an, a useful piece of integration into patient care in order to better help understand um, the healthcare team. This particular study um, followed the implementation of the risk factor assessment, so they used certain criteria. Again, it was male, over the age of 50, um, they, those with a history of urine, uh, genitourinary problems, and also history of diabetes because of its impact on kidney function. Um, these people were given Foley catheters intra-op, and based on the intervention that was implemented in this study, they were able to decrease the amount of volume that was accumulating in patients' bladders when the Foley was discontinued. So they saw that when these Foley's were placed intra-op, patients were having a lesser amount of urinary retention once the Foley's were being pulled. So regarding the challenge of anesthesia contributing to poor, um, the four authors listed for 2009 um, thought about how different types of anesthesia may contribute to the development of poor. So they found that general anesthetics tend to have an effect of causing bladder atony. So this means that the musculature of the bladder becomes weak and does not function to contract and relax in the proper fashion to allow for successful spontaneous urination. Spinal anesthetics block both motor and sensory pathways to and from the urine. And when these pathways are put to sleep with the anesthetic, adequate signaling from the bladder to the brain cannot occur. So the patient may not sense the urge to void or may not have the coordination of their nerve pathways to successfully void with relaxing and contracting their muscles. Along with spinal anesthetics, patient-controlled analgesics, also known as PCAs, can increase the risk of poor because they also have the similar effect of blocking the motor and sensory pathways. So the evidence-based practice that we found based on our evidence-based literature um, says that there were two trends to be uh, implemented regarding poor. So the first is the implementation of a risk factor assessment to help identify patients at risk for developing poor. 
This allows for the immediate monitoring of patients that require close observation in the development of poor. By narrowing the view of the healthcare providers to those that need a focused assessment, it helps to provide more patient-centered and patient-specific care. This implementation aids the healthcare providers to know which patients need to have more routine bladder volume assessments and more monitoring of their voiding patterns. The second piece of evidence-based practice used is the bladder ultrasonography, or the bladder scan. So the bladder scan that's currently implemented at DHMC falls right into the practice that is suggested in the literature. Each of the sources that we researched thought, um, throughout this project all mentioned the use of a bladder scan and referred to it as the, golden, um, the gold standard of poor assessment. It's non-invasive and allows for the most accurate obtaining <coughs> of urine volume within the bladder. All right, so part of this project was doing research and coming up with recommendations for our unit. So in the PACU, I found that the best way to address poor was actually preoperatively. Once the patients come to the PACU with this issue, it's sort of too late to intervene and prevent it. And from there, it's just multiple straight cats. So based on the risk factors found and addressed previously, the best way to address and prevent poor would be to use these risk factors to create a screening tool that will be done preoperatively. It will identify those with at least three of the risk factors mentioned and give them an indwelling catheter, simple as that. This will be discussed in more detail later on, but once this patient has the indwelling catheter, they will be followed through all phases of care into the OR, into the PACU, and to 3West um, and be continually assessed. So on 3West, it's recommended that we continue to use bladder ultrasonography to assess our patients. Um, as stated previously, it's the most reliable, non-invasive way that we can obtain data from our patients regarding their um, poor status. In hopes of noticing the issue of poor sooner in patients that are at risk, it would be beneficial for there to be a 30-minute time frame upon patient arrival to the floor that a bladder scan must be obtained. Currently, there's no um, mandated or policy form time frame that a bladder scan needs to be obtained in upon uh, arrival to the unit. So, um, this would provide the floor staff with a new baseline urine volume once the patient has exited PACU and is on the floor, and it will allow for interventions to be taken promptly to better patient outcomes. All right. So here it is, the short-term indwelling catheter protocol, or STIC for short. This is, we've taken the risk factors identified for these patients in, with poor and created a screening tool for them. So this will be implemented preoperatively and intervene so that poor does not occur. This will screen patients and give them an indwelling catheter if they meet certain criteria. Based on our research, they should have this indwelling catheter for at least 12 hours because that's typically how long a spinal anesthetic will last. And the catheter will be attached to a leg bag encouraging patients to still ambulate while they're on the floor while on 3West. And after the 12 hours, the indwelling will be removed and typical DH protocol will take place. So based on bladder scan, we'll determine what your next action is. If after the removal, the patient does not void for four hours, that's when you scan the patient and again, um, follow through whatever task that the protocol states. So the goal is to assess these patients continually until they are discharged and chart the trends of their bladder volumes and urine output. Over the course of six months, the goal is to gather retrospective data on all patients in which this protocol is implemented to determine if it is effective. The overall goal being to decrease incidence of straight catheterization, ultimately meaning that there is less poor. The protocol has the potential to be used in different populations as well, including others that have spinal anesthesia that might not necessarily be having a joint arthroplasty case 
or others that have um, neurological or bladder issues. So this is an example of the STIC protocol. Uh, Dean Reeves was kind enough to share her wonderful idea with us. She, she actually thought it was a real thing when she was like, oh, the STIC protocol. But it, yeah, she helped us create this. <laughs> so. Um, the goal is for the provider to write a nursing communication order to remove the Foley catheter and the attached leg bag after the 12 hours. And as Saren stated, then we would resume the normal bladder scan protocol. So here you can see the main risk factors we focused on, which were found in the literature, is if someone is male, over the age of 51, receiving a joint arthroplasty with spinal anesthesia, and a past medical history of urinary tract or neuromuscular disorders. Um, these would include multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, and a history of stroke. Uh, for each of these categories, the patient would receive a point or a check. And if there are three or more uh, categories which the patient scores in, then the patient should receive a short-term indwelling catheter prior to surgery. By doing this, it's hopeful to decrease urinary retention um, and that if it stays in for at least 12 hours. This will also allow those involved in the case to administer necessary fluids intra-op so that the patient can avoid complications such as Bob did. So let's try to remember our good old friend Bob. So to review, he was 65 years old and he received a spinal anesthesia for the elective total hip and his past medical history was osteoarthritis, GERD, hypothyroidism. So using um, Instead of using his previous outcome, let's imagine that the stick protocol was in place. So using the stick protocol, we could give Bob points for being male, over the age of 51, receiving a joint arthroplasty, and spinal anesthesia. So this would give Bob a total of four out of five points. And based on this protocol, Bob should receive a short-term indwelling urethral catheter. Um, with this, anesthesia may avoid the challenge of estimating fluid resuscitation because now there is a Foley present to allow for accurate urine monitoring. And using the STIC protocol could also have prevented the issue of Bob becoming hypovolemic when transferred to 3West and avoided the need for an additional fluid bolus. Although Bob has a catheter for 12 hours postoperatively, he's more likely to have a less stressful hospitalization versus the previous situation. The short-term indwelling catheter allows Bob to ambulate within the first day postoperatively and along with nursing encouragement for ambulation with this catheter, complications of immobility can be avoided. So we would like to ask any of you if you have had experiences with poor and how you feel poor could be improved and support better patient outcomes here at Dartmouth. Um, so I'm Megan Smith. I'm the nurse manager for the Brigham Pavilion. And so obviously uh, our patients don't have a lot of these risk factors, but we experience this all the time. And so I was just curious if you, in your reading of the literature, saw anything as it relates to obstetric patients by any chance, um, because we're trying to fix this for our patients um, in particular, whose only risk factor, if you look at that, is spinal anesthesia. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we all, from a, a C-section perspective, we always put in a Foley. Um, but really, if you think about that and the risk factors, we wouldn't necessarily do that mm -hmm. if they didn't have the others. So I was just curious what you found and if you found anything. We haven't really been successful in finding stuff, but. So 
I focused on my research on the orthopedic cases, but I mean, it is sort of a given. I think the biggest risk factor there is spinal anesthesia. Right. You are unable to conduct those pathways. Obviously, you can't void on your own. So I think that would be the biggest one. But I specifically didn't find much on obstetrics, yeah. but it, it makes sense that that's an issue on that floor. Yeah. We're finding it even, you know, in our vaginal delivery patients and, and receiving that epidural. And I was also just curious if there was um, anything around um, that specific anesthesia type and what you were finding for your. I think we mostly just focused on the orthopedic patient yeah. population because I was on the ortho floor yeah, sure. and, and Saren was sending the people from PACU to me. Right. Um, so unfortunately, I don't think we have an answer about the no, obstetric no. population. Yeah, I didn't know if you saw anything. I hadn't. That's your next. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. So, any other experience with poor or your thoughts on the stick protocol? You think um, logistics of the protocol? Um, so, I had a patient with a spinal fusion, and after post op day back, he was still experiencing urinary retention uh, due to opioids. And since you can't really use any ibuprofen or anti inflammatories for that's tough because usually spinal fusion those are the patients that have chronic pain so they probably have been using opioids for a majority of their life or for many many years um, that's tough what what I have seen um, from people coming down from the pack you're talking about PCAs or no, he was just on oral opioids. an oral opioids and the, I was on 3 West for my junior clinical and I had a few spinal fusion patients and they have been using um, oxycodone for 10, 15 years and it's just something that they're used to. I mean, um, moving them off of opioids into a different pain medication can be pretty drastic for those patients that are used to it for such a long period of time. Um, I'm not sure of research that has been done to sort of find a way to take them off of that because there are so many other risks that go with um, chronic opioid use. but. Um, that would be something pretty interesting for you guys to maybe do next year. I don't know. <laughs> maybe one of the practitioners in the audience would know. Well, I think that one of the things that didn't um, uh, show in your in this particular case because this patient happened to be on a very limited number of medications that could be contributing. But I suspect that medication use in general is probably a big contributing factor. Not only um, opioids, but other anticholinergic drugs that are going to contribute to um, urinary retention. So I think um, to explore it from a, a pharmacologic point of view might be a really good way to um, look at the literature with a different spin, and you might find something as well. I have a question about um, the stick protocol and the risk factors. Now, you said age greater than 51 in males. Did they say what caught, you know, why they picked that population? Did they talk about BPAs or enlarged prostate? Yeah, that was exactly the reason. Yeah. <laughs> Um, typically, males over 51, they have a more enlarged prostate and more risk for urinary retention. Yeah. The other thing I thought of, and now that I see you, Jillian, in the audience, I was just thinking about sort of all the work that is being done around Cotty and that, and I was just wondering if that 
in the, you know, sort of on the other opposite side of that was kind of talked about in terms of <coughs> that we're also being vigilant about that risk factor just in general, as we know that we're putting a lot of emphasis on that as an organization. So one of the um, pieces of literature that I had done for my annotated bibliography said that if an indwelling catheter is removed within 24 hours of placement, the risk of infection versus that being placed and straight cathing, there was no significant difference. So. And you can think if you're straight cathing multiple times, that's a great, more, much greater risk for infection rather than one insertion of an indwelling catheter. Patients come to the PACU, obviously there's a few things that need to be done first, and bladder scan is not top priority, but it's usually within the first 30 minutes to an hour that if we see there's no Foley, we will scan them because they've been in a case for a few hours and they haven't voided since before the surgery, so just to check. And a lot of times we don't find large bladder volumes, but there are times that we do, and obviously we have to intervene appropriately. About bladder scanners, I've run into a couple instances where the amount that you get on the bladder scanner is not what is actually in their bladder, but I don't know if that's the bladder scanner itself or the way that people bladder scan the patients, because you could bladder scan for 300, but there's really 700. Yeah, I think I think that's a technological issue. I think anyone that's ever used a bladder scanner and then has gone to straight cath, they find a great difference in the amount, um, but it's, it's technology. Yeah. Oh. Thank you for that great presentation. My name is Jean Coffey. I'm the director of nursing research, and I hope that you come talk to me when you come to work so you can <laughs> carry on your, your work here and continue it. One thing I was wondering about is in your initial protocol with the two-hour repeat of the bladder scan, is there any consideration in there about the fluid balance coming into that? Because your case illuminated the fact that in that two hours, that was a pretty big change in bladder volume. So I'm wondering if, as you look at that protocol as well, that you know that's also nursing assessment, looking at the EBL and the and the fluid resuscitation in the in the OR, and is that taken into consideration to consider bladder scanning sooner than the two-hour window? So yeah, when I give report to nurses on the floor, I do make them aware of the EBL. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'll say the last time that a bladder scan was done. But I think we kind of touched upon the fact that in the transfer process, there's you might not be able to stick to the two hours because there's a lot going on. You have to admit the patient, and then you finally get them settled, and then you can scan them. So it might bump me a little bit more than two hours, which might cause a little bit more fluid retention in that time. But I mean, on the floor, um, unfortunately, I don't think that I think there's so much going on sometimes with your four patients that it can be hard to um, say, okay, now I need to think about their diuresis as well. Um, but I think that it should be done more, that it needs to be taken into consideration because a lot of the time I'll get in report, oh yeah, they received a liter of normal saline, but then EBL 250. 
So it's, okay, so what are we doing with all this extra fluid? Why are we giving so much extra fluid for such a small amount of blood loss? Look like maybe a disclaimer or sooner yeah. fluid status. You know. I think that would be very beneficial. Yeah. Paige? Um, I guess this is kind of bouncing off of what Jean just said, but um, I guess I have more of a recommendation than a question. Um, so as I know you both know, I did my senior practicum with the staff and resource team, so I've worked on almost all the med search floors. And not only have I seen um, poor an issue on all the floors, but I don't think nurses are fully aware, like you just mentioned, to even think about, okay, where's all this extra fluid going? Mm -hmm. So um, I would highly suggest, and I don't know how, but definitely spreading this knowledge to other floors because it's not just a problem on three West, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea, definitely. But this semester, I it just kind of popped out to me that all the joint arthroplasty cases it just so happens that I'd be sending my patients to Becca and she would be seeing the same issue, but definitely this could be hospital-wide because it is obviously an issue that's not priority for some nurses, unfortunately, but um, I don't think people realize it because you can't see a bladder stretch injury until the patient has long-term effects from it. So It's a great tool and I think it would work anywhere. So any other discussion points? We'll have more time for questions after, but... Experience with poor. Olivia? So this is more just like a question for the PACUs. I'm not too familiar with it. But you mentioned how it can be uncomfortable for patients to like use um, any method of going to the bathroom because it's not very private. Mm -hmm. Has there been like any talk about how the, like, the PACU can make that more comfortable for patients? Um, I don't believe so. Uh, the, the setting of the PACU it would be really hard to do that. There is a patient bathroom, but think about in these cases where the patients have spinal anesthesia, they're not able to ambulate to that bathroom, so a bedpan and a Foley is their only option for voiding in that setting. And you say, all right, we're gonna put you on a bedpan, and they're like, okay, let's do it. And you know, you can hear all the conversations outside of the curtain, and it's not them refusing to go on the bedpan, it's just kind of hard. I mean, you can imagine. Yeah. Your friend? Um, did you run into any literature talking about people who've had to have previous um, catheter catheterizations and how it could um, affect the like, form? Because on um, the neural floor, we ran into a patient who failed to mention that she occasionally has a straight cath, and she had a 900 ml um, volume of urine in her bladder, um, which obviously led to a stroke injury. So is there any protocol on, like pre-assessing before, like if this has happened to them before, or so yeah, that was part of our research, um, was identifying these risk factors, but then also um, there are certain patient populations that naturally kind of retain some more fluid than normal people would. Um, and I guess that could also be something along with this protocol is to sort of say, hey, do you have urinary retention issues at home for the patients that do have to straight cath themselves? Or you find, you know, asking um, voiding patterns, how frequently do you void, how much do you void, all those things. But yeah, that could definitely be a part of the pre-assessment for this protocol. You know, I'll also make a plug for EDH here because when A2 comes in, there's a problem list, and it's very helpful if you see urinary retention mm -hmm. and then a little description of the date and when it happened because that, that can be really, really important so you can key in on it right when they come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Okay, so 
that's just our references. And then uh, we wanted to extend a thank you to Dr. Reeves for standing up here, giving us that great introduction, um, teaching a wonderful leadership class and um, being a great role model for us. Also, Judy Langwins for letting us um, give this special nursing grand rounds. Um, I want to give a special thank you to Chris Killam and the PACU nurses um, for helping me identify the issue of poor and helping me find some research on the topic. And I wanted to thank Kelly Converse and the uh, staff nurses on 3 West for their support and ability to help me with this project as well. So Jillian, since we have you sitting in the corner over there, thank you for pointing her out, hiding back there. Um, you know, one of the things that um, Sarah and Becca were talking about as we were thinking about this project in its early stages is the sense that there are decisions being made now intraoperatively and in recovery about how much fluid to give a patient knowing that we're trying to quote unquote avoid the catheter and avoid, you know, bladder. Is that something that we think is happening sort of insidiously or is are they changing protocols to try and keep catheters out of patients at this point? Do you know anything about that? I actually know a little bit about that. Um, I thought you might. Would you like a microphone? No, I'm actually good. So part of the issue is that it's not just replacing the blood loss. There is a three-to-one component when anesthesia is being um, released. So if there is a 250 blood loss, they need to give at least um, 750 <laughs> milliliters. Um, there is a conscious decision to try and give patients less fluid. Um, there's many services, regardless whether they have a Foley or not, um, they're finding that there's more issues with fluids. Um, I can speak to the thoracic service, frequently gives less fluid because all it's doing is going into the peripheral tissues and not into the central circulation. So there is a decrease on the amount of fluid that we do give. So it's not just to prevent the Foley going in? And I think probably the other comment that, that I would make for the nursing leadership in the room, and I think you're probably very aware of this, one of the other phenomena that the students were describing is the difficulty in implementing the protocol as it's written because people are, can't find bladder scanners. Uh, and they can't find them in a timely way, or they're off the unit filling in for somebody else's broken machinery. So just thinking about in order to actually implement evidence-based practice and the, the wonderful protocols that are evidence-based, we actually need to be able to provide the tools for the nurses to be able to do that. So, and again, I don't think this is news for anybody. Right. Jane? I did have one other question. When you were doing your work, you know, to speak to Jillian's point about the third spacing and the, the you know, then fluid shifts later in the recovery period, was there anything spoken about that in bladder um, volumes later on in the recovery post-op? Because, you know, you have your initial mm -hmm. post-op um, diuresis, but then, you know, to speak to your point about the third spacing, what happens later on with that? And I do PD, so I'm, I'm, I can't... <laughs> I don't think we saw anything that specifically talked about like, are you talking like, like how later on are you? 
you know, within like the next 24 to 36 hours. I, I didn't personally see anything in the articles I looked at that looked specifically at that time period of diuresis. Because I was wondering about recommendations for continual bladder scanning to avoid, you know, a, a sort of a delayed problem with that. So. Okay, so, so you're saying implementing the stick, taking out the Foley after the 12 and then changing the current DH protocol? Or? Well, some type of a, like what's the periodicity of the follow-up? once you've taken the catheter out and someone's, you know, hema, quote unquote, hemodynamically stable, mm -hmm. but they still have that fluid on board that they're going to have to diuresis at some point. Yeah. Do you continue to do bladder scanning later on in their course of hospitalization? I mean, a lot of them probably go home not long after that if yeah. you have quick mobilization, but just to think about that as, a, as an assessment piece mm -hmm. if a patient stays longer. Yeah, we, I, mean, I think we find it on the BP and I can see Kim over there. So. Um, you know, we we will do the, the Foley catheter at C-section, and then we actually don't take it out for 18 hours usually, just because we know that the spinal anesthesia, um, the the dosing of a spinal for a, a C-section is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't um, pull them, because what we fi find is, is that if we pull them at 12 hours, we're a lot of the time replacing them mm -hmm. because the patient's unable to avoid. And we do have the four hours as well, but I think it's a great question, so if they, if they void and they void 350, and we think that that's great, are we sure that that's great? And I think that's the question. Right. Um, you know, in our population, bladder scanner is not even a, a tool that we use because the uterus is so big, and because it's full of blood, and it always gives us uh, a number that's, to your point, not at all um, representative of what's actually in the bladder. So we don't use it, but. Um, it's just a great question, I think, because we think things are going mm -hmm. well, but how do we know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm not sure that we do. Professor Hall? Um, so in our patient population on One West, we do a lot of gynecological surgeries for um, removal of malignancy. So often the patients will have a total um, abdominal hysterectomy and then a bilateral salpinko oophorectomy. And they're often on prolonged anesthesia. So they'll have a spinal block through epidural for several days. They'll be on a PCA coming out of the OR. So it, they often, um, almost all of them, do have indwelling Foley catheters. But how would your protocol fit in with those patients that require prolonged sort of anesthesia because they're going to have this situation where the bladder is not innervated for a more a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to just be able to have the catheter for 12 hours and then have it removed. And then my follow-up to that would be how would it help us achieve our CAUTI initiatives to reduce um, urinary tract infections in those populations? So to address your first question of how it would apply to more of the, the hemonc population, um, so I think that, I mean, every patient population is going to be different in what they need and what they require um, for catheter placement. Um, you know, I think that it would be great if each unit could have their own procedure regarding urinary retention because all of the operations that are performed are so different in each population. Um, so I think ours specifically was more focusing on the orthopedic cases and all of that. Um, so if there's a preceptor student next year on Hemonc, <laughs> could address that topic for Professor Hall, it'd be great. <laughs> there you go, Jacqueline, we got your project for you. <laughs> I just started for you guys, you're welcome. <laughs> I think it's 
probably also interesting for all of us because we sit here probably with bladders that are way over 500. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well done. Thank you.